um, a little bit different than I have. We're just going to read this text, and we're going to actually end up reading this twice. And there's a, quite a few verses here. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll read it through once, and then we'll walk through and find some observations. Mark chapter 3, seven, verse 7 through 35. A great crowd follows Jesus, and verse 7 starts, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Andrews, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But it is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at, about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whew! That's a lot of Bible. The reason we're reading that twice is because that's a lot of, that's a lot of Bible. Um, and to walk through this, kind of like last week, the text sometimes seems like it's... We, we read these chunks and they don't seem like that they're very connected... Uh, but what we're going to see is that there, Mark is continually trying to grab our attention and tell us this story. Now, the Gospels, if you remember, are, are, are kind of uh, biographical of Jesus. Uh, but they're this new type of writing because there's also this spiritual content that's being told to the reader. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four different Gospels, and my understanding is that Mark is the template for the other three Gospels. Mark is not as wordy 
It's only 16 chapters, and as you go and compare, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of overlap, and there's Bibles, as I've mentioned, that you can go and look at those Bibles, and they're side by side, uh, where they're called the synoptics, and they they see together, they have this uh, overlap, but John takes it to a whole new poetic level when you go to read John's Gospel. Now, the moment that you discover that there's four different Gospels is kind of a... It's, a, it's, a, it's an agitating feeling because you're like, I just read that, but one of the gospel writers has something a little bit different, and you go, why are there multiple stories of the same event told from a different perspective? But as we've used the illustration, if you were to come upon some type of scene, some type of car wreck, if you were across the street or if you were in another vantage point, you would see something different with that event. And if you were to give a police report, you'd be talking about the same event. You'd be talking about the truth of the situation as much as a human can grab with their five senses what actually happened and recorded. And to give that, to give that angle or through their, your own vocabulary or words uh, to express what is being said there. We have this added dimension that we believe that this isn't just uh, an individual writing. We don't believe that this is just Mark writing, that God has inspired this text, that God is actually speaking through the human author uh, and using the human author in a way to tell us something revelatory or a revelation about the God who is revealing God to us. And in this case, the story in the life um, of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Mark has been taking us on this journey uh, through the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We saw John the Baptist was the forerunner. John the Baptist, right before we even got out of chapter 1, was handed over. Gives us the picture of how this gospel is going to go. This good news story is going to go. That there's already somebody that is a prophet-like figure speaking on the behalf of the only God that exists. Being taken into custody, being arrested. Um, we're seeing that... The people who get in on this story or the people who decide to participate in this story uh, might have a future that does not look as rosy as we had, we had thought we would get when we, when we come to religion or we come to spirituality. John the Baptist is handed over and right after that it says that Jesus began his ministry. Jesus was tempted in the, the wilderness and Mark is real short on that. We, we covered that as we looked at that. Some of the other gospels uh, go through a longer dialogue between Jesus and the Satan, right? They have that, that Jesus quotes the scripture and um, after 40 days and 40 nights, uh, Satan leaves. But Mark is real quick and he tells us that the angels attended him. And the conclusion there with Mark's gospel is that Satan's already lost. Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> this, there's a couple of phrases that we're going to repeat through Mark, and one of them is that God has shown up. Mark is trying to get you to respond to who Jesus is, or who Jesus is being presented as. If God comes on earth, what does God look like? If God comes into a real time zone, if God comes into a real zip code, if the God of the universe, the creator, the self-existent author of life, steps into your world and my world in a time, Remember when in Matthew's gospel, there was a, a census being taken and Jesus was born as a baby? Is there anything more vulnerable in the world that God could become? God actually shows up as a baby. God has shown up in this world. 
Mark doesn't go into all of those nativity pictures that we have in our mind, but he's talking about the ministry of Jesus. And when the sky rips open, the Spirit of God comes into Jesus. God is on the loose in the creation, and this is what happens. Jesus' ministry kicks off, and he starts to talk about the rule and reign of God, or the kingdom of God, which really just means, in, uh, in, for me, layman's terms, is that God is the owner of the house. God created it, spoke it into existence. Everything is God's. God is rule and reign over the house. And, and Jesus has uh, embodied God completely. He's fully God, fully man, moving among the people. And what starts to happen is people's human frailty starts to be reversed. The uncreation that sin has caused is starting to be reversed through physical healing and also through uh, spiritual healing, as we've seen with the guys, uh, the friends that lowered their friend down through the roof. And Jesus speaks that, hey, your sins are forgiven. And then he affirms that by saying, take up your mat and walk in front of the religious leaders. Now, I don't want to keep repeating this every week that we come to the text, but this is how we get to, before we get to chapter 4. Because chapter 4 starts with Jesus talking about the parables of the, 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 musk, the, the seeds that are, that are scattered. And the disciples are in seminary at that point. They're in Bible college. They're in this ministry uh, education with Jesus at that point. Jesus has been calling the disciples, right? There's lots of pictures happening here, even though Mark is the shortest gospel. You guys with me on this? Lots of, lots of pictures that are moving around, lots of scenes that if we, we come every Sunday and we, we have a gap, we come and to be continued, right? And we come back and next Sunday and to be continued. But there's these pictures. Jesus has called a couple of them. He called uh, those that were fishing, right? He called this individual Levi, we saw last week, that God saw him at his tax office and called him to follow Jesus. And we've seen Jesus cast out demons, and Jesus has been healing on the Sabbath. He's been integrating this Old Testament perspective of the Jewish law, and he's been challenging it. And there's the religious leaders and their perspective, the gatekeepers, those that read the big fat books, or scrolls, right? They were the ones that were interpreters of the law. They were trying to bring a renewal movement among the people of Israel, because by this time, and as we'll see in the text, there's a little bit of uh, uh, things that are happening in the text. But at this time, the 12 tribes of Israel, there's only about two and a half tribes existing at this point when Jesus is walking the earth. Okay? And we find that Jesus is challenging the religious leader's perspective and their interpretation of the Old Testament law. And what it means for Messiah to come, what the prophets foretold about one who would come and deliver them. They're thinking very earthly on all of this. They're, the, the religious leaders of the day are thinking very on the, on, the, on the earthly human plane of this. Thinking that God is going to bring, send someone to deliver them from Roman rule. Now, that's, that's one of the problems with the Bible, right? in my opinion, is that it, it's so earthy that it's actually written in a historical time. You ever think about that? We, we want something spiritual. We want to come to the text. We want something from the text to give us a, 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 you know, just some, some power, and that's there. And we want it to affirm us, and that's there. And we want 10 steps onto a better life, a better marriage, a better friendship, a better work environment. We, we want all those things. But what we, when we come to the text, what we actually find is ambiguity to some degree but then we find something that's very concrete, which is our historical perspective. God, but this is why it's good news, is because you and I live in 2019 in a real time. 
We live in the United States of America, a real place, with a real government, with real neighbors, with real occupations, with real life settings, right? This is the world in which God shows up. It's not some imaginary world like, uh, you know, dragons and uh, vampires and all this other stuff that we have fed our minds with. This is actually a historical event. So how many of you guys remember history? Is there any history teacher, teachers in here? Anybody ever been, like, just in love with history? I mean, the History Channel's fun, right? But, but see, that's not fair because you're watching actors, you're watching special effects, you're watching millions of dollars, people that built sets, and you're watching that stuff, these reenactments. But when you actually read history, I mean, how many of you actually, when you're reading it, you're like, oh, man, this, this is getting me. This is getting me today. Yeah, there's a couple of them, right? And sometimes when it connects, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And so you go a little bit further. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's what that is. That's really... So where I'm going with all this is to say that this happened in real time, and the Jewish people are waiting on a Messiah that is going to deliver them from the tyranny. But we all know that humanity is corrupt, right? Humanity is broken at every level. Church leaders are corrupt sometimes, right? Politicians, they're never corrupt, are they? Right? Yeah. The IRS, your neighbor. Humanity is corrupt. Herod is this puppet king that Rome has this relationship with, and Herod represents, he's the Jewish king, but there's a whole faction of uh, the Jewish people called the Sadducees, and because of the exchanges that happened within the temple of them buying and selling to make their sacrifices and make the money, the exchange of that, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead because they think that this life is the only life that there is. Then you've got this other perspective of Jewish people, the Pharisees who believe in resurrection, and you've got all these things that are happening in this first century understanding of God's going to show up, God's going to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome, but then there's this other group of broken people that are corrupt, and they have this perspective, oh, well, we might as well cash in on the system while we can, right? We'll be under Pontius Pilate. We'll just make some money on the side. Yeah, God's going to send Messiah, but that might not come right now. Ah, it's okay. Israel's really not Israel because there's only two and a half tribes left. Ah, it's really not that big of a deal, but hey, we love Torah. We love law. Hey, we're very fundamentalist about all the things that God wants us to be about. And this is the world in which Jesus actually shows up. That God shows up in human form and Mark has captured and brought us in and we have box seats to this story of Jesus. We have this this front row seat where we see things happening that the characters in the story do not see happening. Mark is writing and he's thinking while he's writing and he's got you in mind. He's got a reader saying, this is what I'm going to try to tell you about Jesus. Now, we, all of us, have baggage from our understanding of who Jesus is, and we have all these layers that were, or some of it's really good, and some of it's not good. And so, we saw at the very end of last week, which was verse 6 of chapter 3, this is, this is how it ended. Okay, remember Jesus, he didn't heal the guy on the Sabbath by touching him, he didn't do, actually do any work, he just told him to stretch out his hand. So technically he wasn't working, but you remember they were watching him at that point. They were trying to catch him. This is verse 6, okay? We, we're, we're in verse 7, and this is last week. This is how it ended. The guy stretched out his hand, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. This word that Mark makes up. Those that were part of the Herod group. Remember the corrupt political religious faction? This is how, this, this is how we go, we'll go into the text for this week. And they plotted... So, and Jesus asked him, you know, is it good to heal and bring life on the Sabbath or, you know, not? 
And of course, their answer is actually actionable. They actually take action by saying, oh, well, we're going to go to the corrupt people over here. We're going to partner with them on the Sabbath, and we're going to plot to kill Jesus. So word images or pictures in your mind, these scenes that you need to keep in mind as we walk through is John the Baptist is handed over. The whole religious system that's supposed to be there as God's representation in the world on earth as it is in heaven is corrupt as corrupt can be. God shows up. They don't recognize God. They don't recognize that he's Messiah either. And they plot to kill him. This is, we're not even, we're, we're in chapter three of the gospel. Lots of kill and violence and destru- destruction and, and these, this, this reality of this first century setting. So, good stuff, right? I mean, you got to read Mark. Or the, you're going to be like, where is he going? And you might do that anyway, but just, you got to read Mark so that you, you'll be ready for this. That's why we read this one time through. Now let's walk through this. In two minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, next scene. Remember they go out to kill him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed. Remember, Mark's given us word pictures. This is repetition in the text. He's been telling us about the crowds are pressing in. And the one commentator says that the, the crowds are falling on Jesus and the demons are falling before Jesus prostrate to recognize his kingship. When Jesus speaks to the guy in the, that's uh, demon possessed in the Jewish church, right, the synagogue, he tells him to shut up. We've seen the fever leave Peter's mother-in-law, which in the ancient world, we, they associated uh, sickness a lot of times with the de- demonic activity. When God shows up, the demonic activity starts to be reversed. And the crowds, as they are being included, being restored back to their community because they don't have these physical ailments that once was thought they gave them the picture among all their friends and community that they had sinned against God, like this Job story, right? They were picturing that, that, that these people were the way they were because they had done something against God. And the disciples actually think this at one point too. Hey, did, was it his parents' sin that he's blind? Or is it because uh, he did it? And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, this is so that God's glory can be shown. We see this repeated through the text, this ancient worldview. But God has shown up and so these things are being reversed. And the word gets out, right? The leper is healed. And Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. Just go do what Moses required you in the law to affirm what happened to you. And the guy, he can't, he can't keep it quiet. And so these people are just pressing in on Jesus. And we're going to continue to see. It's amazing how much the Bible actually talks about Satan and the demons. I know that's uncomfortable for us modern folk. But we're going to walk through some of that. And some of it's, some of it's mania. And some of it, we, we, so we, we, we go to one ditch and we're, we're not good with the mania. I don't encourage anybody in here to focus long on demonic things and study demons. and that, that, that's, not good, that's not good stuff. And most of that Hollywood stuff is for shock value to pull you in. And the more you get intrigued by it, the more darker you go. And so there's the mania side. And then, there, then our, our world in which we live in the modern realm is to say that none of that exists. And so we go over to this other ditch. And that there's this probably place right in the middle. And that's where the text is going to take us today. So we're going to talk about just... This, this picture of, of who Jesus is. We're going to talk about the, the ministry of the disciples. We're going to talk about demons. We're going to talk about the religious leaders calling Jesus 
leader of the demons. And we're, I know, this is, this is good stuff. Are you guys excited about this? I know. I, we're, we're, only, we're only, you know, one hour in. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. So the crowds are following. They're, they're, they're pressing in on Jesus. Now, Mark tells us that they're from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Enomia, and beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Two pictures there. John the Baptist had people coming from Jerusalem and Judea, but Jesus' ministry is actually pulling in like a magnet, this force, people from even farther reaches, which would have actually been to cover all of ancient Israel. So Mark's letting you know that the whole world is being pulled and running after Jesus. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, right, they want to cash in on this too. Black Friday, Walmart, before they had stretched it out over four days. People getting trampled at the door because they found economic utility in going after something that they thought would benefit them. There's no difference between that and what's happening here. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And so Jesus tells his disciples, now the disciples... We're getting to the 12, but there's actually more disciples than just the 12, as we'll see. So when you think of disciples, there's, there's this bigger picture that you can have in your mind of the disciples. And Jesus tells them to get a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, in the ancient world, uh, walking the streets, if people were out to get you, which they're out to get Jesus, right? Walking the streets is not a safe, real safe place. This is actually the shoreline is probably the safer place. And remember, the Pharisees just went out to plot with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. And, of course, the crowds are coming. Their ministry is not really doing that well because, remember, they're the representation of God on earth. These religious people are. And that's the only way that the masses of people can get to God is through these religious people's words. The only way they can get to God is through the religious sacrifices that happen in the temple that's kept at this arm, this huge arm's length that they can't even get to God because God is represented in this locale, this temple, this space. And there's this whole swab of religious people and the religious laws and their crappy uh, interpretation of the law. I'm sorry I used that word, but that's the word picture, right? And there's this, this huge distance. When people are held away from God, that's a bad thing. And we should get upset about that. And we should use strong language to say people should not be held that distance from God. Especially by people who claim to be followers of God. You know what I mean? And the church has a bad reputation about putting up every obstacle, every barrier, and, and, and every rule, and every law. And finally the person goes, I just don't even want anything to do with that. And they walk away because there's so much stuff between them. But what Mark is telling us is that God is busting through. Jesus becomes the temple in Mark. Right? Jesus says that, tear down this temple, rebuild it. Jesus is actually becoming the picture of God's locale. And God is actually busting through all these barriers to get to the individual. Amen? That's good news. That's really good news. We do not want to keep people at arm's length with religious ridiculousness. When the great crowds heard what he was doing, they came to him. He's sitting in this boat. The boat probably was creating like an amphitheater off of the water so that um, he could speak and teach them. But he had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. He's a miracle healer. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So here comes the confession. And remember, just like in the Jewish church, the synagogue, Jesus is not wanting confession from demons. James tells us that the demons confess God and they know who Jesus is. So what? But this is the picture, and of course, you as the reader have 
uh, you have a special invitation to a front row seat of this movie that Mark is unfolding for you. And Jesus strictly ordered the demons to not let him be known. Because Jesus needs to heal more people. He needs to train the disciples so that they can witness what is going to unfold, which is really the death and resurrection. And you and I are sitting here as beneficiaries today as the church because of the events that the disciples witnessed and everything that happened in the historical period of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we sit here this morning proclaiming resurrection because of that was handed down to us. Amen? Good, good stuff. Jesus went up on the mountain. So we were by the sea, and now Mark is going, next scene, Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he called to them those who he desired. I won't get into some of that. Some people think that that means, oh, yeah, God chooses people to follow him, and God doesn't choose other people. The Calvinistic thing, again, that is not what I think is happening with this text. He calls to them whom he desired to witness all the things I just said so that they would be the representations to build up and make more disciples, as we see in the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. But he called them apostles, those that were sent out, that's what that word means, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority, this is the other part, to cast out demons. We already asked the question, have you ever, have you ever cast out a demon from somebody? You might have actually done it and not even known it if you brought the love of Christ into someone's life. A person that wakes up every day with an addiction, a person that wakes up every day lonely, a person that wakes up every day not wondering what's going to go on. And then you, you just happen because there's this movement inside of you to go and love that person, to speak a word of scripture to them, to, to point them to Jesus. You are actually delivering them from darkness. And that's what we're all called to do. They have the authority to cast out demons and he appointed the twelve. Simon. And, and there's so much irony happening all the time in the, in the scriptures. There's like big jokes happening, right? Because Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means rock. And of course, we know Peter's track record. He's like the stock market throughout the whole gospel stories, right? And he's, he's more like Rocky. Jesus talks in chapter 4 about the seed that goes out among rocky ground. That's the only other time that that word's really used in Mark. We'll see in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus tells him, hey, you don't have the things of God. You actually get behind me, Satan. Jesus, like, Mark's got these, these interesting things that we see in the text. And what the good news about that is, is that somebody like Peter, who doesn't always get it right, but he's got a lot of passion. He's in the game. He's for Jesus. He gets off. He, he denies Jesus. He gets back in the game. That's good news for all of us that decide that we're going to follow Jesus, especially as we get later on in this text. When Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. Because I know some of you, when we read that the first time, you go, I remember that verse. I don't like that verse. It's good news that there's a guy named Peter that doesn't really act like a rock. James, the son of Zebedee. Remember the guys that were fishing by the boat? And John, the brother of James. To whom Jesus gave the name Boandres, which in Greek doesn't mean anything. And then they translate this somehow and they say that it's the sons of thunder. Now, what's funny about this is in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, remember James and John are arguing about once they kind of figure out that, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, Jesus is the one. Oh, you know what? In your kingdom, can I sit on your right and left? Remember, there's a point where their mom comes. Say, hey, Jesus, can, can we get in on this, uh, uh, this ruling bit? Can they be on the right and left? <clears throat> Listen to this in Luke. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he did not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who, sent in, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. That's where the cross is. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, gotta, gotta love this, right? Sons of thunder. When James and John saw it, they said, Lord, don't worry, we got your back, Jesus. Do you want us to tell fire? Do we want, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> I love the Bible. These disciples, there's good news for me in, in here. I don't know about you. There's good news that these guys are so off, they don't get it. They, they want to call fire down for people. Have you guys ever drove down Ohio at 5 o'clock? You want to call fire down? Jesus said he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. The other thing that we're going to see in Mark, and the funny thing is that they don't get any of this. Jesus is calling these folks. Sons of thunder. Jesus is like, yeah, you guys want to call fire down. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Scarlet, who betrayed him. You look at those names... And there's so much happening. We could spend a whole bunch of time on all of the individuals that Jesus calls to his inner circle. But I guess what I'm just going to point out is that these are ordinary people, just like you and I, that are confused. But you know what? You know what? As we go through Mark's gospel, one of the things that we'll find is that who's on the inside with Jesus and who's on the outside of, of, of this uh, following Jesus. And the disciples have this back and forth. Sometimes they're in and sometimes they're out. The religious leaders, they're very rarely in. They're usually on the out because they don't care about people. God cares about people, and so it's a very important thing to care about people as we walk through the text together and remember what God actually requires of us. Micah 6 8 says, What, what, what do you, God, what do you require? And he says, To, to, to love mercy, to do justice. Those, those pictures of who God is. In Matthew 23, Jesus repeats that same thing. And he says, you know what? Pharisees, you religious people, you do all these things, except you should have paid attention to the most important part of the law, which was to do mercy. Jesus tells that to the Pharisees. Matthew 23. And of course, this is the sad note. Mark has the future because he's telling you the story. He already knows in verse 19. Judas Iscariot was chosen. He was chosen. But he walked out. He betrayed him. Then he went home. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. This crowd is just pressing in. They can't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. We can go to the next verse, Jerry. Now, this translation actually tells you that it's his family. The Greek doesn't actually let you know. It's those that, those that were with him is, is more of the translation that's happening there. And what Marx is doing, he's trying to be more subtle. The, the text already gives you the clue that his family's coming. Mary and the brothers are coming. Raining crazy Jesus. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. And Beelzebub's only from the Latin Vulgate translation, which you know, I know you don't really care about that, but the fact is that that's later. The old Greek manuscripts, which is more accurate to where we would get the text from, is, is that it's Beelzebub, which means Lord of the House. Uh, you guys are just, woo, this is good stuff. But Lord of the Flies means Prince of the Demons, or this, this picture of they're calling him Satan. 
Jesus does a pun in a minute when he talks about a house divided against itself. He's talking about that, the Lord of the house, that, that there's, a, there's lots of humor with Jesus uh, through the text that we'll miss. And I'm just going to throw that out there so you can go study that on your own if, if that interests you. He called them to him and said, to, he talked to them in parables. Now, Jesus was speaking pretty plain to them. But as we get past chapter 4, we'll actually find a place where it says that Jesus quit speaking to those on the outside. There's an insider-outsider language. To those on the outside, he spoke in parables, story forms, because he's not going to argue with these people anymore. He's not going to argue with their ignorance, their willful ignorance. So they call him, hey, you're the prince of demons. And so Jesus just lops this back to them. Like, oh, that, that really is logical that I'm the prince of demons since all of my activity that I have been doing, and of course we haven't seen all that, we just have what Mark's recorded, but up to this point they've seen lots of stuff, probably not even recorded in this. So they know that Jesus can overcome the natural realm with his power, like real power. They know that he has this authority over the spiritual realm which nobody can see. And their argument is, oh yeah, well I know how you're doing that. You, you, you're the, a lot of times when, when religious people don't understand something, they blame it on Satan. Just say, just say no. So watch out for that habit. <laughs> They're calling the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, Satan. But Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Well, riddle me that, Batman. Right? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, there's that pun in the Greek, that the house is not able to stand. And if Satan has ribs and up against himself and is divided, he's like repeating himself like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Come on, folks, open your eyes. But remember, they have an agenda, and it's not to seek truth. They have an agenda to destroy him because they're not popular. Remember in chapter one? Oh, this one teaches with authority. Jesus is a whole new game for the religious establishment of the first century and still has always been. Jesus is a challenge uh, to some of our religious understandings. Satan has risen up against himself and the house is divided, he cannot stand. But it is coming to an end. This is an implosion. It's about to implode on itself in that scenario. Jesus goes further into the parable. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. I used to think that the strong man was Jesus but when you read this enough, it's, it's the interpretation that the strong man is actually, he, Jesus is calling Satan the strong man and to plunder his goods. Now, what is, G, what is Satan's goods? Anybody? Does anybody know what Satan's goods are? It's you and me. At the very end of the little epistle, 1 John, John says that the world, in the Greek, it's a picture of somebody holding a little baby, and it's a picture of Satan just holding the world like a little baby. Sin arrested you and I to the point that we would be damned in death. The good news, what gospel means, is that God didn't, he busts through everything to get to you and me. Good news. God comes after you, no matter how broken you are, no matter how much you're in the clutch of the devil, of all the violence and all the brokenness in this world that we've all witnessed, God is undoing the strong man. So, this picture of you and I being the goods, this is good news because God has shown up and he is tying up the strong man. 
And the property is becoming rightfully owned back to God. And it's going to be purchased with a cost. The purchase of Jesus' blood on a cross. Unless he first binds up the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. All of the activity Jesus has been doing has been evidence that this is what's happening. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We've, you could spend quite a bit of time on this. And, and what I just want to say about this is that uh, a lot of people worry, have I committed the sin that's unforgivable? What they don't realize is how much of hyperbole, you guys all know what hyperbole is? It's exaggeration to make a point. How much, how much hyperbole is actually in the Bible? How much hyperbole and humor is on the lips of first century Jewish Jesus? How much sense of humor God actually has in letting human authors write this thing? The hyperbole is to make the point. They focus on the negative side. Listen, listen to the first part of verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. And blasphemy is actually included in that. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul said, hey, I, 1 Timothy, Paul's like, hey, I, I was a blasphemer. That was my job title. That God did not show up in Jesus and I went out killing Christians. Right? Paul was a blasphemer. All sins will be forgiven. The, what, what, what's happening here, though, is to say that a person, I'm just going to read this for you. People need to learn that rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is one thing, but attacking the power by which he works is something far more serious. If one is weak, one can be encouraged. If one is ignorant, one can be informed. If one is willfully blind and deaf and rejects help, what can be done? One has cut oneself off from what might lead to repentance. The sworn enemies of Jesus have shut their eyes to the truth. They say good is evil in order to turn others away from Jesus to preserve their own authority and to resist becoming disciples. God is willing to forgive even this sin, but they willfully shut themselves off from God's forgiveness. It is not a single action, but a continual state of spurning the Spirit's work. So if you're even worried about committing this sin, that's good news because you're not willfully opposing what God has done on earth. We can go to the next, next slide here. And his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what Mark has done is he's sandwiched these pictures together. Remember, he said the, the, the text kind of cheated a little while ago, and it told you that his family went to look for him, and then it went into the whole story about Jesus, with the Pharisees calling him a demon, and then it comes back to this story at the end. He's actually creating a sandwich for your mind. You know, like just when you watch a, when you watch a movie, and it goes from one scene, and you remember that was happening, and you go to another scene, and then you come back to the scene that, you, that was happening over here. Remember the theology that's happening here. What I've been talking about this whole time is being unpacked for you in different, word, in different pictures for, the, for your imagination. And the thing is, is that blasphemy, calling out directly that Jesus' power comes from Satan. Yeah, Jesus calls that blasphemy, but there's this other blasphemy that's actually more subtle. Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they said to him and called for him. And the crowd was sitting around and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? 
we get this picture that they, they mean well, but they, at the same time, there's this other, there's this other aspect to this picture of what, what is uh, confronting the, the person that needs to respond to Jesus. When you look at the very end of this, this is, this is where we, I want to end on our, for, for the hopeful perspective, which I've been talking about a lot of dark stuff, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're in the text, and Jesus is moving towards the cross, which is a very dark subject. But it all leads to hope and redemption and mercy from God, which is good news for all of us that live in a broken world, right? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is not a Mother's Day passage. You don't want to read this, you know, like, hey, reject your family. And Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying that his reign, God's reign on earth that comes through Jesus is here. It's shown up. But he's, in, he's being inclusive here by saying anybody is welcome to be a part of this. That's good news for you and I, that God has come after us, that God is busting through every barrier. But there's also a cost that's going to happen. The cost, it, it could be your religious perspective. The cost could be even your family. There's a lot of people that have chose to follow Jesus and lost their family. The message to you this morning is that God has come after you, that God is inclusive, and God invites you into the family of God. That's what we're building in this picture of Mark's gospel, is that God has shown up and he's, he's got this genuine invitation that's power coming after you to destroy the enemy's work. That's good news. We're going to take a communion here. And... Um, you guys want to come.